Well, I am in awe. Uh, and I want to thank Jerry for being such a great opening act for me last night. <laughs> I just, you know, I appreciate so much his message and the, the uh, more or less tribute he gave to the Al-Anon program. And I feel humbled and blessed to be a part of your fellowship this morning. I, my name is Stephanie and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi everybody. And you know, I, a long time ago I said something about my sobriety date was, uh, and somebody said to me, how can you Al-Anons have a sobriety date? You slip every day. Uh, and that's the truth. The, what my sponsor explained to me was that on July the 24th of 1985, I made a commitment to work the Al-Anon program to the best of my ability. And so I love the way these ladies gave their anniversary date. You know, we keep showing up and doing what's been asked or suggested. I love that word, suggested, don't you? Uh, this is suggested. Do it or you'll die. Uh, that's how I feel like everything. Now, this is just a suggestion, you know. Yeah, right. Um, and I need to thank Dick. Uh, I saw him about a year and a half ago, and he invited me here and thanked the committee. I have a, two beautiful baskets in my room, and I appreciate that. I just appreciate somebody asking me one more time to be able to be a part of the fellowship. You know, I have my little home group. It's the <coughs> Monday night ODAT uh, family group in Marble Falls, Texas. I live in Granite Shoals. This is a town of 2,000 people. We have almost that many registered this weekend. So when I get to be a part of this larger fellowship, I am humbled and very grateful. And then God put this little angel in my life, and her name is Lisa. And she started calling. And at first it was kind of like, to, my name is Lisa, and I'm going to be your hostess. And then I got a birthday card, and then I got a Christmas card, and then she'd call just to see how I was doing. What a beautiful hostess she has been, and I appreciate you. Thank you. You know, and then listening to Tammy last night, I just love the way she brought the steps into the program. And when I'm listening to Jerry, you know, he lives in Dallas, and I'm in Granite Shoals, and we're not but about five hours apart, but I'd never heard his story before. And when he said that he thought Al-Anon was a kitchen utensil... Um, I thought it is. It doesn't work unless you pick it up and use it, you know. So he wasn't far off on that, you know. Uh, even in his ignorance, he had some truth going for him. And I can hardly wait to meet his wife. <clears throat> I told Jerry, excuse me, I told Jerry this morning that my sponsor and I every morning get up and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And when Dawn and I are in the same place at the same time, we sing it uh, in, in a closed room. <clears throat> but, you know, we don't try to offend anybody. Uh, Dawn has a beautiful singing voice. I, on the other hand, have been told I can't sing. Thank you very much. So, uh, our literature suggests that I share with you in a general way how sick I was. That's going to be real easy. Uh, how well I am. And then what helped me to get well, with the emphasis being on what helped me to get well. And um, that's what I would like to do with you this morning. I was born in Midland, Texas on December the 24th, 1944. 
Um, now, that should tell you just a whole lot right there. I am a Christmas Eve baby, so it was always Jesus and me are going to celebrate our birthday. And I felt so special. Uh, and I, you know, that was that distorted view of reality that I carried with me in all of my life. Uh, and either I felt less than or I felt greater than. And uh, this past December the 24th, I turned 60. And I am so excited. You know, as soon as I turned 59, I started saying, I'm almost 60. I'm almost 60. And my daughter would say, Mama, why are you saying that? And I said, 59 is a little dull. 60 sounds so classy. You know? And now that I am there, I am just plain grateful to be alive. I am truly just grateful to be alive. So I'm excited about that. I was born into a Catholic Italian family. That tells you a lot right there. I am the oldest of three children. Uh, shortly after I was born, our family moved to San Antonio, Texas, and that's where I grew up. When I was doing a four-step, I needed to go back and look at my family of origin because I would have told you that we were perfect. I would have told you we had a loving family that, you know, I don't know how I ever ended up marrying an alcoholic. Uh, because I came from a very healthy, normal family. And I was stunned when I did the four-step to find out that that's just not true. My daddy was a workaholic. My parents were social drinkers. The alcoholism disease was not present in my immediate family of origin. My mother's family, on the other hand, had several heavy drinkers, um, and I think that my mother was raised by an untreated Al-Anon. And I need to tell you that my sponsor pointed out to me that, you know, when people say all the time, oh, she's an Al-Anon, and they say it kind of like, you know, she's sick and she doesn't know what she's doing. Well, that's an untreated Al-Anon. If you are in Al-Anon, that means you go to meetings, you get a sponsor, you work the steps, you read the literature. So my mother was raised by an untreated Al-Anon. Her daddy was a bootlegger. And then my mother is, was, is an untreated Al-Anon. So I was raised in a family with a workaholic and an untreated Al-Anon. We had some beliefs growing up. One of them was, if you did good, you got good. So I believed that I needed to do good or I was, you know, doomed. I grew up in fear. I don't know if it was the Catholic Church. I don't know if it was my parents or if it was just something I created in my own little brain. But I believed that if I made a mistake or if I did something wrong, terrible things were going to happen to me. So I grew up in fear. I was scared to death to make a mistake. I wanted to please you so badly, and I wanted that affirmation. You know, it wasn't until I got here that I found out that it was an inside job. But I was out there looking for your approval. And if you gave it to me, then I felt pretty good. But if you didn't, I was devastated. I was raised in a home where everything was always fine. We're fine. Fine. We're doing just fine. Um, I also need to tell you that in this 18 years that I lived at home, I saw my mother get mad at my daddy one time. She cried, walked out, slammed the door, got in the car, and drove off. So what I grew up with was when people get angry, they leave. I never saw anger dealt with, validated, or resolved. So I grew up in a home where that emotion was not 
one that I knew how to, what to do with it. Now, I have been in a lot of meetings where people talk about being raised in rageful homes, and I know how damaging that is. I also know that it's very damaging to be raised in a home where none of your feelings are validated. It's not okay to be angry. It's not okay to be scared. It's not okay to have any feeling except you're fine. We're all fine. And I tried to tell you this morning, somebody said, how are you? And I said, fine. And I went, good Lord. You know, (laughs) you would think I could at least say, you know what, I'm scared or I'm, you know, uh, excited or, you know, I'm fine. Um, So it takes a while, I guess, to break that habit. When I was a senior in high school, I met this man that I fell in love with. And uh, Bill and I dated for four and a half years. And in 1966, we got married and moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, we had both graduated from college. There was no drinking involved in the picture. I hadn't seen anybody take a drink. I knew my family were social drinkers, but alcohol was not ever a part of anything. And uh, when Bill and I moved to Austin, I got a job as a school teacher, and I absolutely love teaching school. I think that that's what I was always meant to do. And Bill was working, and, uh, we, you know, we were just in love. And then the first time that we had an argument, <laughs> I cried, walked out, slammed the door, got in the car, and drove off. That's what I had seen exhibited, and that's what I did. I didn't know any other way to do it. I drove around for quite a while, because I don't remember how my mother's story ended. Um, and so <clears throat> I didn't pay attention to that part, so... I was driving around and realized, you know, I probably should go back home and see if we can work this out. And Bill was sound asleep on the couch. Uh, so while I was stewing, you know, he was resting peacefully, um, which seems to be a thread throughout our marriage. And I, I did a lot of stewing. He did a lot of resting. Um, but after we had been married for about three years, I became pregnant. And, oh, I was so grateful to be pregnant. I wanted to be a mommy. And, you know, we're just, we're all, everybody's excited. It's going to be the first grandbaby. Uh, we're just, it's, we're just thrilled to death with this. And, uh, this is in, uh, 69, 1969. And in July of 69, my cousins in San Antonio were having a wedding. And so Bill and I left Austin, drove down to San Antonio, which was about an hour and a half drive. It was a Saturday morning wedding, and it's an an Italian Catholic wedding. The wedding was beautiful. The reception was wonderful. Champagne's flowing everywhere. We're having a grand time. I'm so glad. They're so glad I'm pregnant. You know, we're just thrilled to death. And... uh, after the reception, we all leave and go to the airport because my cousin and his wife are going to fly to Hawaii for their honeymoon. And while we're at the airport, I have people coming up to me saying, Stephanie, your husband is just delightful. I have really enjoyed visiting with Bill today. And I'm thinking, my husband? Uh, now, I know he's got a great sense of humor, and I love being with him. But Bill was raised an only child by a single mom. These Italian gatherings were not something that he enjoyed doing. He came with me just because he wanted to be supportive. And so somebody else would come up and say, Bill's kept us in stitches. We have really enjoyed him. I'm so glad we are finally getting to know him better. And I'm thinking, you know what, maybe he's getting with the program. This is going good. And a few minutes later, Bill comes up and whispers in my ear and says, I'll be back in just a minute. And I said, okay. So we stand there in the 
the newlyweds get on the airplane and, you know, we wave goodbye and everybody gets ready to leave the airport and we can't find Bill. And so we page him and we walk up and down the corridors and we can't find Bill. We go out to the car. He's not there. My brother-in-law found him and he was passed out in the john. Uh, so apparently the champagne he had been drinking. And so we had to get the airport attendant to take the door off the hinges. And we got a wheelchair. And we pulled up Butler's britches and, you know, put them on him and sat him in the wheelchair. And, you know, now I'm eight months pregnant, mind you. And so my brother-in-law says, I'll push the wheelchair. I said, no, he's my husband. I can push the wheelchair. So I'm pushing his wheelchair down the corridors, and Butler's sliding out, and we're pushing him back up again. And my mother starts to say, I cannot believe my son-in-law is drunk. I said, Mama, he's not drunk. He's just sick. He slides out. We push him back up. And my mother is, I cannot believe that that man would get drunk at a wedding reception. Mama, he's not drunk. He's just sick. Bless his heart. Anytime you hear me say, bless their heart, I am having an Al-Anon slip. (laughs) And the reason I'm telling you this story is because 19 years later, I was pretty sure that Bill Butler had a brain tumor. And so I went to a psychiatrist and said, you know what, I'm pretty sure this man's got a brain tumor. I said, I want you to operate on him, take that sucker out, and let us get on with the rest of our lives. That denial got put in place in July of 1969. He's not drunk. He's just sick. Bless his little heart. And um, that's what I carried with me. You know, he's not drunk. He's just had a bad day. Things are just tough. Now, during Bill's job, he had been traveling some, and he'd call and say, we had happy hour. We had a really good time, or I had a couple of drinks on the airplane. I'm feeling pretty good. And, you know, and then the beer started to show up in the refrigerator on weekends, and then the beer turned into a six-pack, and the six-pack turned into a bottle of whiskey, and, and I'm paying attention to this. So I want you to know there's not a lot that gets past me. Um, in August of 69, the most beautiful little baby you ever saw was born. Her name is Laura Janice. And I am thrilled to death. I've gotten to teach. Bill's working. And I get to stay home and be a mommy. And I am thrilled with this baby. And 21 months later, we have our son, Wes. Now the picture is certainly perfect. I have had my profession. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have a healthy daughter and son. Thank you, God. And uh, everything looks really good on the outside. I have got the sign in our front yard that says, We are fine. Thank you very much. Now, Bill's drinking is escalating, mind you, and I have decided to try and get that hole on my inside because, you know, my idea of love is enmeshment. And so if Bill went fishing, we all went fishing. And if Bill went hunting, we all went hunting. And I just thought that if you love somebody, you just kind of clung on to them. And yet, as much as I would do that, I still didn't get that inside filled up. I was looking for the outside to take care of the inside, and it just wasn't working. I was also looking at you, and you were so put together, and I felt so less than, and I kept doing that comparison. So I became a PTA president. I was a Brownie Scout leader. I, you know, was a soccer mom. I just did. I was volunteering everything I could think of just to take care so that I could get that pat on the back, and I would feel okay about being who I am. 
And it just was not happening. But I sure was trying hard. And I need to tell you, when Jerry talked last night about responsibility and irresponsibility, I don't know about irresponsibility, but I know about responsibility. And I need to tell you this little story. We had a Border Collie puppy. And beautiful dog, beautiful dog. And she got pregnant. And we are about to have a litter of puppies. This has never happened in our family before. So it is a big deal. So I decided that, you know, it was getting close to her delivery date, and I wanted this puppy to just look cute and pretty. And so I shampooed her. And after I shampooed her, I thought, sometimes puppies run to dry, and sometimes you towel dry them. And I need to find out exactly how to do this so that I do it right. And so I read on the bottle, and it said, do not use on pregnant dogs. And I thought, oh, my Lord, what have I done? So I called the vet, Dr. Pigott, and I said, Dr. Pigott, you will not believe what I did. And he said, well, Stephanie, it's still a couple of weeks till the puppies are going to come. Let's wait and see what happens. Sure enough, about two weeks later, the first puppy was born, and it was born dead. And I called Dr. Pigott, and I said, I have killed this litter of puppies. And he said, no, she has a lot of puppies in there. Let's just wait and see. And so the next puppy was born, and it was born alive, and I called Dr. Pigott. And I said, Dr. Pigott, we're doing okay. We've got a live puppy. He says, that's great, Stephanie. And about an hour later, Flopsy had another puppy, and it was okay. So I called Dr. Pigott. And I said, Dr. Pigott, we've got two healthy puppies today. And he says, I'm really happy for you. Well, throughout the course of the day, Flopsy had six puppies, and I called Dr. Pigott after every puppy. (laughs) The seventh puppy was born, and it had trouble breathing. It was a little tiny thing, and I called Dr. Pigott, and I said, Dr. Pigott, I've got this little puppy, and I think it might be the last one, but I don't know if it's going to make it. And he said, do you have any whiskey in your house? (laughs) Yes. He says, well, you take some whiskey and you put it on the end of a teaspoon and you put that in the puppy's mouth and you kind of massage it down the puppy's throat. It will break up the phlegm and I think that puppy will be okay. I said, okay, I think I can do it. And he said, and then, Stephanie, I want you to sit down and drink the rest of that bottle. It's a true story. And I want you to know if I could have, I would have. I was so tired. You know, not just from the delivery of those puppies and the worry and the, you know, but from trying to keep all the balls in the air. I was responsible for everything and everybody. I was responsible for your happiness. If the kids did good in school, then I was a good mom. If anything went wrong, oh my Lord, what have I done wrong? You know, my daughter one time said to me not too long ago, you know, Mama, everything's not about you. But I want you to know that before Al-Anon and even in doubt, I thought it was all about me. You know, it was my job, you know. And so I was tired, and I felt the responsibility of everything and everybody. In uh, 1985, our daughter had to have jaw surgery, and she was beautiful if you looked at her from the front, but she had a very protruding chin, and sometimes she has a a beautiful voice also, and sometimes when she was singing in the choir, her mouth would just lock open. So they needed to go in and break her jawbone and scoot that that jawbone back and then wire her mouth shut. We really liked that part. Um, (laughs) 
because she, so that she would be able to chew normally and, and open her mouth and sing and everything. And so, uh, this is in February of 1985, and I have Laura at the hospital. It's major surgery for our daughter. And I look around that hospital room, and my husband is not there. Now, I'm starting to pay attention. I've been watching the drinks. I've been counting them. I have been sharing with him how concerned I am. And I realized, you know, I hear in open AA meetings all the time about that moment of clarity. This was a moment of clarity for me when I looked around and I thought, I am doing this marriage and this family all by myself. There is no butler. There is no bill. And at that moment, I started really watching what was going on in our family. And our daughter was doing a lot of acting out. And our son was just like his mom. You know, he was trying to get all of his feelings validated from the outside in. He was playing soccer and baseball and football. And, you know, we were doing all this. And I was so tired. I was tired. And then I got scared. Because I was watching Bill's body just puff up. It was as if the alcohol had gone into his, the tissues of his body, and he was just puffy. And he was coming home saying things like, what's for dinner? And I would tell him, and five minutes later he'd come in and say, what's for dinner? That's when I thought he had the brain tumor. Um, and I knew he was drinking. Now, he always drank at home, but he also carried a bottle of liquor in his pickup truck in a paper sack behind the seat. So at night, when he would go in and take a shower, I would get my little flashlight. And I would go out to the pickup truck, and I would scoot that seat forward, and I would pick up that bottle of vodka, and I would look at it. And if the level in the bottle was high, I thought, oh, he hasn't had much to drink today. So I would go in and be very loving and kind and caring. And then the next night, when he's in the shower, I'd tiptoe outside, take my little flashlight, hold it up, the bottle up. I'm sullen, withdrawn, quiet, because the level was down. After I got into Al-Anon, and y'all mentioned insanity in step two, (laughs) I thought, how many people do I know that let their emotional stability be decided by the level of a liquid in a bottle? You know, I don't think sane people do that. Uh, But I was doing that. I was watching him, and I was paying attention, and I was tired, and I was crying all the time. And I knew it was alcohol. I knew that if I could get him to stop drinking, that we would all be just fine. And so in July of 1985, I said to him, I love you too much. I cannot, I can't do this anymore. You either need to leave or get sober. And of course, you know, if you had to live with you, you'd drink too. And I, you know, after I got in Delamont, I thought, yeah, I would have. <laughs> um, But at the time, it was like, I don't care. We just can't do this anymore. You know, I've got these two children who Laura's acting out. She's breaking every rule that was ever written. And Wesley's just this people pleaser who has anger tucked inside. You know, I can remember saying to him, Wes, I need you to take out the trash. And he would just slam that door. And when he would come back in, I'd say, there's no need to be angry. You know, I did to him exactly what had been done to me. It's not okay to feel the way you feel and be who you are. After Al-Anon, I wish I had just said to him, I can see that you're angry and I need for you to take out the trash. You know, just validate the feeling. I never did that for my children. And so I'm watching their behavior and I'm watching Bill's drinking and I just can't do it anymore. And he left. 
And on July the 24th of 85, this very fine man called me and he said, I understand you kicked Butler out. I said, no, I just can't live with him drinking anymore. And he said, well, I've got a meeting that I go to and I was wondering if you'd like to go. And so he said, I am a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd like to take you to an Al-Anon meeting. And I went to my first meeting and I cried. <laughs> you know, and I, it, my name, <laughs> you know, and y'all hugged me and said, just keep coming back. It's okay. You know, they talk about being emotionally, spiritually, and physically bankrupt. And that's where I was. I was thinner than I'd ever been. That also is the good news. The sad news is, is that I could not stop crying. And it was like, God, I didn't break any rules. I was a really good girl. And I still, my family's falling apart. If I didn't break any good rules, and what I believe to be true is that if you did good, you get good, how could this be happening? Because it certainly is all about me. And I didn't understand that. And I came and sat in those meetings, and y'all just love me. I cannot tell you how many times I heard people say to me, Stephanie, your God is too small. You need a bigger God. And then I heard you tell me that it was a family disease. That it's not just the alcoholic that is sick. Everybody, if you live with it, you just get sick. And I had raised sick children. I didn't think I could bear that. But you know what? It certainly did give me some compassion for my own parents. Because I got a sponsor. Oh, what a woman. And she says to me, your parents did the very best they could with the knowledge that they had at the time. And so did you. You know, if somebody had said to me, this is how you raise children in an alcoholic home so that they are not affected by this disease, I would have read that book. You know, I didn't get that piece of information. And then I'm going to meetings, and two weeks later, Bill calls. He's been out at a friend's house trying to sober himself up. He said, you know, Steph, I can't do it. I need help. And so on August the 6th of 85, Bill went into treatment, and he got sober. And now I am thinking, oh, wow. I did. Ex- I would have done anything y'all told me to do. You said go to meetings. I went to every meeting I could go to. You said buy the literature and read it. I did. You said get a sponsor. Man, I got a sponsor. Her name's Blanche. Oh, my goodness. Blanche does this program. We met at her house every week for one hour until we were through with the ninth step. And I'm telling you, she started immediately changing my concept of God. She would say to me, you know what? God loves you and there's no way that you can do anything to get that to change. He, you know, he's just, it's an unconditional love. She's the very first person that ever touched my face and said, it's okay to be who you are and feel the way you feel. The first time that's ever happened to me. She loved me. She loved me. She also told me that we were probably going to have some issues with our children. And so Bill's going to meetings and I'm going to meetings and I'm just about as happy as I can be because this, you know, we started talking to each other. And he would come home and he'd say, our meeting was on the 11th step. What was yours on? I said, ours was on detachment, you know, or acceptance or, you know, and it was just, I was just thrilled because I knew that if you could get this man sober, then everything in our family would be fine. Fine. I would be better. Uh, And then we have this teenage daughter. 
And Laura has decided that she does not like living, she didn't like living with a drunk daddy, but she really doesn't like living with a sober daddy. And she is breaking rules all over the place. So we took her to a psychologist and we said, fix her. You know, there's something terribly wrong with this child. And so he met with Bill and then he met with me and then he met with Laura. And then he brought the three of us back together again, and he said, you know, I need to tell you that of the three of you, Laura is the healthiest. (laughs) And our daughter's going, yes! (laughs) And you know, he said, you cry all the time. You have been drinking your feelings away. Your daughter is the only one that is dealing with her feelings. She's doing it inappropriately. But you know how Laura feels all the time. Bill and I had no idea. I just cried all the time. That was my, that's what I did. I cry when I'm happy. I cry when I'm sad. I cry when I'm scared. Um, it's, it, that's just what I do. And Bill had been drinking all these years. So we're thinking, well, you know, we need to get this kid into some Alateen. Well, she did not want to go, of course. And so we bribed her. You know, we paid her $5 to go to an Alateen meeting. <laughs> My sponsor said, whatever works. You know, so we said, go to an Alateen meeting. Here's $5. She went to the meeting. She came home. She said, I'm chairing the meeting next week, and I need to bring brownies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Well, so Bill and I, he's sober about a year and a half. I am too. Things are going pretty good, except Laura's just getting a little bit farther out there. She's a senior in high school. She's got two months till she graduates. She's doing pretty good, and we're feeling pretty good about everything. And then she breaks some rule. I don't know. She stayed out too late or something, and so we grounded her. Well, during the grounding, the University of Texas is playing a baseball game, and Laura loves baseball. And she said, Mom, can I go to the meeting, I mean, to the game this afternoon? And so Bill and I talked about it. We said, yeah, you can go to the game, but you need to be home by 6 o'clock. She said, okay. So this is a Sunday afternoon. 6 o'clock comes, and Laura does not show up. She doesn't come home Sunday evening. She doesn't come home Monday. Monday evening, I'm at an Al-Anon meeting going, oh, what do I do? And y'all said to me, what would you be doing if this weren't happening? And I said, you don't understand. We need to find Laura. I said, she's got two months till she graduates from high school, and we've got to get this kid out of school. After that, I don't care, but we're going to get her to graduate. And that y'all said to me, no, 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 you can't go get her. You can't, you know, what would you be doing? And I said, well, there's a stack of dishes. You know, we'll go home and wash your dishes. You know, just wait and see what happens. Well, Bill's meeting with his sponsor. I have been teaching. I've gone back into teaching once the kids got a little bit older. And so I'm going to school in the morning, and then I run over to Blanche's house in the afternoon. Then I go to an Alabama meeting in the evenings. We're trying to figure out what are we going to do. Our daughter doesn't come home Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. And then Wednesday afternoon, I'm getting in the car after school. And this is another moment of clarity for me. The voice said to me, if what you're doing isn't working, try something different. And I thought, I have been trying to love this kid well. I've been trying to take really good care of her. Because it's like Billy said today, we just kind of feel like love's going to take care of it all. 
you know, and I've been trying to love her and make excuses and be sure, she, you know, I was so afraid of anger growing up. And Laura's, she came out angry. I mean, her middle name is anger, and she'll tell you that. She will tell you, you know, I do anger better. She, she, would, she does anger better than anybody that I know of. And so I had been afraid of her anger, and I had not held her responsible. I did not teach her that if you make a choice, there are consequences for your choices. I never said those words to her. So Friday afternoon, phone rings, and it's Laura. Mom, listen, I'm going to come home this afternoon, but there's a thing on TV that I want to see, and I'm not going to be there in time, so would you please take that for me? As if nothing had happened. And I said to her, Laura, I love you and you can't come home. She said, what? And I I said, I love you and you can't come home. And I was as peaceful then as I am now. And that's not who I am. That is a loving God doing for me what I could not do for myself. Well, you can imagine the response on the other end of the phone. You know, and I said, just know that I love you. And I hung up the phone. And I just stood there and I thought, wow. She's 17 years old. She's got two months till she graduates. And I'm telling her she can't come home. Took a deep breath. Bill walks in the door and I said, Bill, guess what I did? He said, what? And I said, I I just talked to Laura. And he said, where is she? And I said, well, I don't know. But I just told her she can't come home. And he said, why would you do that? He hadn't been to any Al-Anon meetings. <laughs> I said, I don't know why I did that. And he said, well, do you think it's okay? And I said, I don't know. I guess so. So we went to an open AA meeting that night, and I'm just praying, you know. I'd called Blanche, and Blanche said things to me like, did you know that God loves your daughter more than you do? And I thought, oh, that just can't be true. And they'd say to me, come on. So Saturday morning, I wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning scared to death. Oh, my God, what have I done? You know, I told her she couldn't come home. Where is she? And is she going to be okay? And what's she going to do? And we need to get her through high school. And, you know, and I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and I was just about like this. You know, and somebody took my hand, and they said, Stephanie, it's okay. You're going to be all right. You know, did you know you can go ahead and have a good day anyway? And I said, I don't think so. I don't know what I've done to this daughter of ours. But I'll tell you what I did do. I started praying. God and you, I mean, Blanche and you had given me a God that I I knew I could count on. And I knew he was big. Y'all would say to me, if you're having trouble with your higher power, borrow mine. He's doing miracle things in my life. And I was going with what you told me because I was watching it happen in your life and I needed to see it happen in mine too. So Laura was out on the streets for a month. And I didn't know what we were going to do. I'd just been praying. Bill had been on the phone trying to find a treatment center that would take a child that had behavioral problems. And I was just praying all the time. And Blanche and I were meeting, and y'all were holding my hand. One of the things you told me when I got here was that I would never have to do anything by myself again. You're going to walk with me through it all. 
So after about a month's time, I found out where Laura was, and I asked Blanche if I could call her. And Bill had found a treatment center for a acting out behavioral problem teenager. And Blanche said, yes, but we're going to write down what you're going to say to her. You know, Laura, I love you. You're not going to one time say, bless your little heart. Um, and you're going to say, Laura, I love you. And uh, you know, so I called and I got her on the phone, and I said, Laura, I love you. And I need to tell you that if you ever want help, your daddy and I have found a place that you can go. What do I have to do? You know, and I said, well, daddy and I come pick you up. We're going to take you to Denton, Texas, because there is a treatment center there for, that will help teenagers that have behavioral problems. Oh, my Lord, that child had had a rough month. She had been beat up. She had been sleeping under a bench in a park. She looked horrible. And we picked her up and we took her to Denton, Texas on a Monday morning. Dropped her off and I cried. Although I should have been grateful because, you know, she was now safe and I knew where she was and I knew she was going to get some good meals. And she was in this treatment center for about two days and she called and she said, Mama, how would you feel about me being an alcoholic? I said, Laura, any 12-step program you want to latch on to will be just fine with me. And she says, we've been inventorying my drinking. She says, I think I might have a drinking problem. I've never seen Laura take a drink. On April the 6th of 1987, Laura began her sobriety. This past April, she celebrated 17 years of sobriety. Oh, yeah. After she had been in that treatment center for a month, then uh, we went up there for family week. You know how they do. And uh, the counselor said, your daughter has a little problem with anger. <laughs> yeah. And she said, and I don't think she's ready to come home yet, so we have found a halfway house for Laura. She's going to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she's going to be in a halfway house. Well, I thought, bless her little heart. <laughs> do you think she really needs to do that? Thank you, God. Laura went to Minnesota. And four and a half months later, Bill and I go up for her graduation from this halfway house. Now, I want you to know that all I wanted was for my daughter to graduate from high school. That's all I wanted. God said, let's let her graduate by correspondence while she's at this halfway house, and let's give her a 12-step program to live the rest of her life by. I would have cut it short. So now Laura's sober. Bill and I are going to meetings. We're, oh, I can't believe the miracles. I even called Blanche one time and I said, Blanche, do you think we've used up all our miracles? How many does every family get? You know, because this feels really good right now. And uh, Laura came back home. She got a job. She had graduated. Oh, it was wonderful. And now Wes is ready to graduate from high school. I get this little knot in my stomach, you know, because I'm not sure that's going to happen because we thought, you know... But Wesley decides he's going to go out and he's going to play football. So right before his senior year, he's doing those two-a-days, and he's working hard. And this boy gets really sick, and he ends up in the hospital, and he has viral meningitis. He's in the hospital for seven days with 104 temperature. I called Blanche, and I said, okay, you tell me about this God of yours. You've been telling me that God loves us and he only does good. Here is a young man that's never hurt anybody. 
Bill and I are going to meetings. We're trying to walk a spiritual path. Our daughter is sober. We're doing everything you've taught us to do, and this boy is so terribly ill. We had been to the doctors, with the doctors, and we had said, now Wes is going to be okay in me. And Dr. Reen said, I can't promise you that. And I said, Blanche, if anything happens to this boy, I will die. Why would God do this to us? And she said, Stephanie, God didn't do this. Your boy is a human being, and he got a virus. God will sustain you no matter what. Well, we're in that hospital room, and we're praying, and our boy is hallucinating, and it is horrible. There's a difference this time. Bill's with me. We're praying together. We're crying together. The AA community is there. The Alamon community is there. And sure enough, a week later, Wesley gets out of the hospital. Now, he still thinks he's Superman, you understand. He's lost all of his body weight. He's a skinny little thing, but he's going to get out on that football field, you know. Bless his heart. And Wes did, <laughs> Wes did graduate from high school. And I am so grateful. And he starts at the University of Texas. And Laura's working. And Bill and I are doing the program. And I am telling you, I just cannot believe how we have been blessed. And Bill comes home one day and says, Steph, how would you feel about moving to Virginia? And I said, why would we want to do that? And he said, well, I've been traveling all throughout our married life. He would fly and be gone for a few days, and he was doing He said, I'm sick of getting on airplanes. I've been offered a job up in Reston, Virginia. And I said, sure, let's go to Virginia. <laughs> because houses in Austin, Texas were not selling in 1990. So I was pretty sure we weren't going anywhere. Our house sold in two weeks. And uh, I was crying. I don't like change. And I was going to have to leave my children, my sponsor, my Al-Anon family group, my gynecologist, my hairdresser, my grocery store. You know, I didn't think I could leave. I didn't think we could do that. And, you know, the AAs came over, and they're helping us fix up the house and everything, and I'm crying. And I do, And one of the wonderful AA guys comes and says, Steph, what is the matter? I said, I don't think I could leave. And he said, you know what, you've got... You know what you've got in Austin, Texas. Why don't you go see what's in Reston, Virginia? And I went, oh. Did you know that they have got Al-Anon family groups in Reston, Virginia? <laughs> they don't do it right. But they have got... <laughs> there was a loving fellowship that greeted Bill and I when we showed up there. And I was so grateful to be there. And we had a wonderful time. And Blanche had been my sponsor, and she said, Now, Stephanie, you're going to need an eye-to-eye sponsor, so you need to look around and find somebody. And sure enough, I got another gal. Blanche said, We're never going to separate, but you need somebody that you can sit eye-to-eye with. And so we had been up there for a while, and we get a phone call from Laura. And she says, Mom, guess what? And I said, What? And she said, We found Wesley last night. And I said, Found him? She said, Yeah, he's passed out in his apartment. I said, no, not Wes. I said, he saw his daddy nearly die from alcoholism. He saw his sister get kicked out of the house. This boy's not going to drink. Well, Mom, he's he was passed out. We had to sober him up. We had to get him under the shower. We had to pour coffee in him. And guess what? I took him to his first AA meeting today. And I said, you did? Wes? I've never seen Wesley take a drink. Yes. 
So this past January, Wesley celebrated 14 years of sobriety. Do you know how God works in my life? (laughs) He takes Bill and puts Bill in a treatment center. He takes Laura and puts her in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He takes Bill and I to Virginia so that Wes can sober up in Texas. This attachment, I do it really well. You, You just have to move me thousands of miles away. Just don't let me get anywhere near you for a while, and you can probably get well. And so now I'm telling you, can you believe it? The family is a, I mean, we are all in the fellowship. It's just, I am just thrilled. We're going, I go back home periodically and I'm just having a grand time. And I've gone to teaching. I was teaching up in Reston and Bill had a job he loved. And we were having meetings in our home. We were having big book studies and, and couple meetings and, oh God, it was wonderful. Well, uh, I get a call from Laura and uh, she says, Mom, guess what? I said, what, Laura? And she says, I'm going to have a baby. And I said, no, you're not. She said, yeah, Mom, I'm going to have a baby. I said, no, sweetie. She said, Mom, I'm pregnant. I said, no, you're not. Mom, I said, Laura, first we have the wedding, honey, and then we have the baby. You didn't have a wedding. She said, Mom, I'm pregnant. I said, no, honey, you're not. Well... She said, Mom, do you want me to have an abortion? I said, no. She said, do you want me to give the baby up for adoption? I said, no. She said, what do you want? And I said, I don't want you to be pregnant. (laughs) When I called Blanche, she said, you are opting for one of your unavailable choices. (laughs) I did that a lot. But I want you to know in Reston, Virginia, there was a loving group of gals that loved me through everything. Joanne was there. Joanne met me at the airport yesterday. I have been loved through all this, and I, but I kept it a secret. See, I didn't tell very many people that we were going to have a baby and we hadn't been married. Laura had five years of sobriety. Had y'all not taught her anything? You know, I was through. It was your responsibility now. Well, it was a sober member of AA that she had been dating for a while, you know, and so they just weren't going to get married. And so one of our dear friends, Rita, was at our house for a meeting one night, and I said, Rita, I need to tell you something. She said, what? And I said, Laura's going to have a baby. She went, oh. I said, Rita, it is terrible. She said, why? I said, because she didn't get married. She said, Stephanie, wouldn't it be better instead of saying it's terrible if you just said it's what is? It's just what is. She was my first example in acceptance on a real deep level. On June the 6th of 1992, the most beautiful baby girl you have ever seen was born. I get goosebumps right now thinking about it. God loves. Her name is Stephanie Grace. She is a joy. Bill's there sober. I'm there. I wasn't saying that I was there. Wes is sober. You know, I mean, the AA community was there. We didn't need to have a marriage license. We had a beautiful baby. And I am thrilled to death. She's been going to AA meetings since before she was born. Today she's 12 years old. But I need to tell you that when she was in second grade, the teacher had all the kids in that classroom introduce themselves. 
This beautiful grandbaby of mine stands up and she says, Hi, my name is Grace, I'm an alcoholic, and I've got seven years of sobriety. She had been going to AA meetings since before she was born. That's all she had ever heard when you introduced yourself. You said, hi, my name is, and I, and the teacher goes, what? And Grace has her mama's attitude, you know, seven. She says, did you hear what I said? I told you I'm sober today, seven years. Oh, what a joy. I would have missed it. Can you believe I would have missed it? I judged it and I found it wrong. I would have missed it. Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. I did a lot of things that way in my life. I didn't know alcoholism was a disease. When Bill was drinking, I judged him. What's the matter with you, you poor little fella? You know, you have no backbone, no character. Put that drink down. I judged. Uh, well, Grace is 12 today. Grace does have an attitude. I do want you to know, though, that if anybody calls their house, any of the girls Laura sponsors, Grace says to them, so, you know, my mama's going to ask you, have you written about it? <laughs> have you gotten out the 12 and 12? This is my grand, that's all she knows. At, when she was like eight years old, she went into the AA group in Austin and she said, Gerald, I need a sponsor. And I want to buy one of those books over there too. She is a joy. She also is a challenge. You know, she was raised by, you know, my daughter. Uh, Ellen Laura will call and say, Mother, you won't believe it. I go, yes, I do. Been there, done that. Grace is a joy. I love her with all my heart. I am thrilled to death that we did not miss this. She is the biggest blessing in my life. After uh, Grace is born, I'm flying back and home. I get a phone call from my family in San Antonio, and they tell me that my daddy had an abdominal aneurysm that ruptured, and he died instantly. I was stunned. My daddy was 76 years old, and he had been out playing tennis the day before. But you know what? As sad as I was to lose my daddy, I am so grateful that I had worked the steps of the program because everything was clean between the two of us. I had told him I loved him. Now I have to tell you the part of my story that I always wish we could just kind of skip over. I was telling Walt last night, one of my character defects is that I always wish things were different. You know, in the past. And there, you know what? You can't do anything about that. In 1994, in February of 94, with eight and a half years of sobriety, Bill Butler uh, suffered from depression. He could not live with his humanness. And Bill committed suicide. I need to tell you, you need to hear two things from me right now. One of them is AA works. This is not about AA. 
he cherished his sobriety. The other thing you need to hear from me is that depression is an illness, and if it goes untreated, it will kill you. Bill had suffered from depression throughout his life, but he had taken antidepressants, and then he'd get off of them, and then he'd take them, and then he'd get off of them. And he wasn't on any. He was going to meetings. He was sponsoring people. We had been out to dinner and to the grocery store the night before. It wasn't like I saw it coming. And I thought I was going to die. It took every meeting I've ever been to, every hug you've ever given me, every phone call, every piece of literature I've ever read to be able to make it through the next few months. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to call my children. And I called Laura and I told her, she said, Mama, that just can't be true. Daddy loved you too much. He would never leave you. I said, Honey, it's not about love. And I called Wes and told him, and he says, Mama, Daddy loves you. Daddy wouldn't go off and leave you. Well, you know, I went to see a psychiatrist and said, What? How? Why? And he said it was a moment of insanity. If Bill had been on his antidepressants, you know, he would be alive today. Uh, the people up in Virginia wanted to have a memorial for him. Thank you. And so uh, we did. And my teacher friends from school came, and the church was filled with people. And they, my teacher friends are saying, who are all these people? You've only lived here four years. I've lived here 20 years, and I don't know this many people. <laughs> I said, they're my family. And you were. You told me I would never have to do anything alone again, and I didn't. We brought his body back to Texas, and we buried him there. And I went back to Virginia. I didn't know what else to do. I was in counseling. I was having a really difficult time. And the counselor explained something to me. She said there is a difference between grief and trauma. She said trauma is when in an instant your life changes and will never be the same again. And you've been traumatized. It has a whole different set of, I guess you'd call them problems. I mean, things like you feel like you're losing your mind. You know, there's a set of stuff that goes along with grief or trauma is just a little bit more intense. But you know what? Bill died. I didn't. And during this time, Blanche and I had been talking, and the sponsor that I had in Virginia did not know what to do with me. A suicide of a spouse was bigger than she could handle. But I had met this beautiful woman at a convention one time, and her name is Dawn. And Dawn called my house, and she's told whoever answered the phone, if Stephanie ever needs to talk, I'll be here for her. And Dawn, Dawn knew pain, and she and I began working together, and she became my Virginia sponsor, and Blanche was my Texas sponsor. And she would hold my hands, and she would tell me, you know what, we're going to make it. You know, we're just going to do what's in front of us right this minute. 
and I was in this school working and the kids kept asking me to come back home and I'd say, no, you know, I think I need to stay here. And you know what? Two years, almost to the day after Bill's death, I walked in the house and I said, he's not coming back. It took two years for that piece of information to get from here to here. Two years for the reality to set in. A year after Bill died, both of my children got married. 1995, April, Laura had a beautiful wedding. In August of 95, Wesley had a beautiful wedding. And I'm still in counseling, and I'm asking this counselor, you know, what is going on? And she said, this may be a practice marriage for both of your children. They need to recreate that family unit, which has been destroyed with Bill's death. And yes, it was a practice marriage for both of my children. Nice term, don't you think? And so in 96, I kind of thought, you know what? I think I need to go home now. I think I need to go back to Texas. After the realization that he really had died, he really wasn't coming back. And in the process of his career, he had been putting money over here so that, and they were matching and all this stuff. And there's this lump sum of money that I do not know what to do with because we never had any money. And so they give me all this money, and they said, here's your money. And I said, okay, and so what do you want to do? And I said, I'm going to Texas. And my friends in Virginia said, where are you going to live? And I said, I don't know. I said, I love the water. I'll try and find a place near the water. And I've never lived in a new house before. I think I'll go find a new house. And you know what? I love sunsets. And in Reston, Virginia, the trees are so tall, you never get to see the sunsets. Well, today, I live on Lake LBJ. The sun sets out my back window over Pack Saddle Mountain, and I bought a new house. I was just, it was just a thought I had, but it's almost if God said, you know, I'm so sorry you're hurting. I am so sorry humanness did this. Let me see if I can't make it a little bit easier for you. That's how I felt. So I get to Virginia, I mean, get to Texas. I'm living in a little town called Granite Shoals. It's got 2,000 people. And I'm close to the kids. They're both in Austin. And so I'm, you know, getting to see Grace and all this sort of stuff. And with all this money, I had invested with a man in Virginia that had been recommended to us. And so when I moved to Texas, I said, Bruce, please send the money down here. And this is where I'm going to live now. And he said, you know, the check is in the mail. And the check never came. And so... um, Bill's, Bruce stole $350,000. Everything that Bill had saved and been building for was gone. It was almost like another death in the family. I didn't know what I was going to do. The only thing I knew to do was to teach school. I did file charges against Bruce, and he did go to prison for two years. And the judge did say to me, we have done a paper trail, and the money is all gone. So I pray that you'll be able to get on with the rest of your life. And I thought, well, you know, the only thing I know how to do is to teach school. They had just finished building a brand new elementary school seven minutes from my house. I teach school there today. I teach first grade. I am self-supporting through my own contributions. But you know what I learned? It's not about money. 
And I'll tell you why. First of all, the AAs had taught me to pray for Bruce. Little son of a... And I have been praying for Bruce for the last seven years every single day. And the knot's gone. I don't feel it anymore. I pray for Bruce and his family. I don't know why he did what he did. I don't know how somebody lives with that, but you know what? And so I go back to school. I mean, I'm teaching, and so I get my paycheck, and I think, you know, I don't want to give up my new house. But if I have to, and then I get my paycheck, and I'm going, yes, I've got a job. I'm going to make it. And I open that envelope, and that paycheck is not enough to make a house payment. And that's when I said, must not be about money, God. You must want me to teach first grade. And that's what I've been doing every day since. And I love what I do. And I have just enough money. And you know what? It felt like when Bruce stole the money that he took all my choices. I was going to travel with Grace. And I was going to go to AA conventions. Look where I am today. I didn't need that money to do this. God took care of that too. Well, I need to tell you. I need to close. I, my beautiful sponsor, Blanche, she and I have been back and forth. And, you know, in the process of the money being gone and everything, I was driving a 10-year-old Oldsmobile that had over 100,000 miles on it. And every time you got in it, you were, you just kind of prayed that it got you where you wanted to go. You know, and sometimes it did, and sometimes you just kind of sat in the middle of the street and waited for it to get its second wind, and then you started up again. And Blanche, it drove Blanche crazy. She would say things to me like, Stephanie, I am entering a sweepstake for you. And she said, can you drive a red Jeep? I said, yes, Blanche, I can. She said, I'm going to try to win you a red Jeep. And then three or four weeks later, she'd call and she'd say, okay, I think we're going for a Pontiac this time. Can you drive a Pontiac? Yes, Blanche, I can drive a Pontiac. And I was scared. I had that knot back in that tummy again. Y'all know that. And I was like, I don't know what. I, and finally, I was getting sick with worry. And I thought, you know what, God, you have sustained me this far. I guess it's just going to work out. So I said, Blanche, don't worry about it. It's going to work out. She said, Stephanie, have you not heard the term footwork? You know, maybe you need to do. I said, Blanche, I don't know what else to do. I don't know how you make a car payment on my salary. I just don't know how you do that. Well, about three years ago, Blanche was in a terrible accident. And she was in the hospital. And... uh, she was in the hospital for seven weeks, and I would drive from my house to that hospital about an hour and a half, two-hour drive every Saturday, would spend the day with her. Poor woman was so worried about my car. I said, Blanche, it's okay. I got here. I'm going to be all right. Well, Blanche did not survive her injuries. And uh, I'm telling you, I made a deal with God. Her daughter called me, and I was at school, and she said, if you want to say goodbye to my mama, you better hurry. And I got in that little red Oldsmobile, and I said, you know what, God, I did not get to say goodbye to my daddy, and I didn't get to say goodbye to Bill. Please let me say goodbye to Blanche. And I got there, and I was holding her hand when she took her last breath. And I got to tell her how she had touched lives. She had been in the Al-Anon family group for over 35 years. Ah. They had a memorial service for Blanche. They asked me if I would say something. I said yes. Laura called that morning and she says, Mom, I'm going to come to the service for Blanche. And I said, oh, good. 
She said, you're going to tell her how important Blanche was in my life, aren't you? You're going to tell them, aren't you? And I said, Laura, you hated Blanche. (laughs) She says, Mom, it's because she told you not to accept unacceptable behavior. She told you to hold me responsible for my choices. And she says, but you know what? If it hadn't been for Blanche willing to share with you, I may not be alive today. And I got to share that. Blanche had been gone a couple of months, and her daughter called me. And she said, I don't know if you're going to understand this or not, but she said, I had a visit from my mother last night. Okay. And she's uh, really worried about your transportation. (laughs) I said, you know, can there be any better meetings than where she is? I wish I had said, tell her to go to a meeting. Um, I didn't think that quick. I said, you know, Ellen, I'm fine. It's going to work out. And she said, no. She said, I really do believe that my mother wants you to have her car. And I said, oh, Ellen, I can't accept that. And she says, well, then you're going to have to take it up with mother and God. She says, because I believe that's what they want to have happen. Blanche was driving a 1999 Cadillac. It's all paid for, and it had 23,000 miles on it. I'm driving that car today. Every time I get in it, I feel hugged. It helps me to remember not to limit God. I just wanted enough money for a car payment. That's all I wanted. You know, and God said, yeah, but you know what? Let's just go ahead and give you a Cadillac. Now, this little town where I'm teaching <laughs> looks a little peculiar, but uh, I'm trying to do it gracefully. I heard a comedian one time say she used to want to change the world. Now she just wants to leave the room with dignity and grace. I sometimes think that might be my job, too. You know, I have learned a lot on this journey, and it's not over. The best may yet be to come. You know, I might, all I know to tell you is that I would pray that you not limit God. You know, he's, he's big. He's really, really big. And if we can make it through what this has been for us, just imagine. I am blessed today. Both of my children have remarried. They are happy. They're content. They're in Austin. Grace is the joy. And I have a loving fellowship that I go to every Monday night that tells me to keep coming back. You know? And my sponsor, Dawn, I'm with her on the phone all the time, and she says to me, are you in present time? And I always say no. And she says, well, if you get there, you can get some gratitude. Well, I want you to know right now, this minute, I am in present time. I see your faces, I feel your love, and I am humbled to be a part of this fellowship. Thank you.